CIVL-FM in Abbotsford. And we'll have some news coming from the coastal uh, regions of BC. All this and more on Coastal Voices. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Coastal Voices. As always, I am your host, Sasha. Uh, on today's episodes, we have a resonating reconciliation documentary produced by Alicia Williams of CIVL Abbotsford. I had the chance to meet Alicia during the NCRA conference this past May, and we spoke about the process of recording this documentary and what it meant to her. She was uh, in part of a workshop talking about the process of interviewing her grandfather for this documentary. And just before we get into it, I just wanted to let you know that it may be triggering for some folks. It does discuss uh, Indian residential schools in Canada, and that can be a little bit triggering for some folks. Um, Anyways, as, as far as that goes, tune in, listen to it, let me know what you think. I'm on air at CFUV DJ uh, on Twitter, so thank you for tuning in to Coastal Voices. This is a presentation of the National Campus and Community Radio Association's Resonating Reconciliation Project, an initiative that addresses the legacy of residential schools through community radio. It is funded by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and Northern Development Canada. It is made possible with the help of the Red Jam Slam Society. Presented by CIVL Radio on the Abbotsford campus of the University of the Fraser Valley. If you find any of the content of this presentation difficult, a crisis line is available to provide immediate emotional assistance and can be reached 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 1-866-925-4419. We would like to acknowledge this documentary was researched and recorded on unceded Stolo territory. In 1867, the British North America Act transferred responsibility for Canada's First Nations people from the British to the Canadian government. In 1876, the Canadian government created the Indian Act in an attempt to consolidate all existing legislation that covered First Nations and their relationship to Canada. It was torture, small children. Covered First Nations and their relationship to Canada. The Indian Act was designed to protect First Nations land, but deemed a reserve as crown land set aside for the use of a band of Indians. The Indian Act of 1876 essentially made status Indians wards of the crown and imposed self-governing regulations and control over their daily lives. 
1883, Sir John A. Macdonald, who was both Canada's Prime Minister and Minister of Indian Affairs, moved a measure through his cabinet authorizing the creation of three residential schools for Aboriginal children in the Canadian West. Aboriginal children had everything that was familiar taken away from them, including their name. St. Mary's Residential School Survivor, Edward Williams. My number was 43. It never bothered me them days. I didn't know about that. UFE Resident Elder, Eddie Gardner. The only reason why that we have uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is because of the bravery of the survivors. The courage, the tremendous courage of uh, survivors who broke the silence of the atrocities that they were subjected to when, uh, when they went to Indian Residential School. Every time I think of, uh, uh, of those leaders who, uh, who stepped forward and said, this is what happened, this is the truth. Many of those people tried to tell their story in the past, but did not succeed because uh, no one would believe them. But they, uh, they, needed to, uh, they needed to get it out and, uh, and have it uh, exposed. And when they did that, it did trigger a mobilization of people that, that, that resulted in um, a settlement agreement that was uh, negotiated through lawyers that involved the, uh, the churches, it involved the survivors, it involved the uh, federal government. Out of, uh, out of uh, uh, this series of, uh, uh, of negotiations came this uh, Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. Part of it was, of course, the common uh, experience. Everyone who attended, even if it was only for a couple of days or so, they would get at least an X amount of money, $10,000. And if you attend more than one, attended more than one year, then, of course, you'd get uh, additional amounts. And they, they had their own formulas for it. There was another uh, level that Indian residential school survivors could apply for, and that was for more grievous, uh, severe experiences. The horror stories that, uh, that are told would uh, make the hair stand on your on the back of your neck. That's a, it's, it was torture. Small children were subjected to hunger. They were subjected to physical and sexual abuse. And uh, I just don't want to get into it uh, because it's too, uh, too horrible uh, thing to talk about. But, um, but it needed to be said, and, and the truth needed to come out. When they, when they brought out those, uh, those stories... Any, any uh, teacher, any uh, person of the cloth that was still living, um, the RCMP got involved and, and uh, charges were, were made. And so uh, there, there, there were a, a number of high-profile cases where, where, where priests, even in their elderly stage, were brought to justice, and that was a good thing. From 1883 onward, the federal government began funding a growing number of industrial schools as well as church-run boarding schools. As settlers moved across Canada, the need to develop and civilize the untamed land increased. In 1920, the Indian Act was amended to make it compulsory for status Indian children between the ages of 7 and 15 to attend either day or residential school, even though both school options combined could accommodate little more than half the school-aged Aboriginal children. The view and the perspectives and the ideologies used to justify the residential schools haven't gone anywhere. Those ideologies and perspectives are still there and still being implemented by the government. UFE Indigenous Studies faculty, Winona Victor. 
that needs to come out and there needs to be education around how to change that. Won't ever happen under the Stephen Harper government, but that doesn't mean he's not going to be the prime minister forever. But at some point, that attitude and that perspective and those um, racist ideologies that are used to justify Indian policy today, including the residential school policy, those all need to be exposed and changed. Intergenerationally, it's affected families. I'm not going to say specifically, but you know, you have whole family systems that went to residential schools and then trying to make it in in the local community. And this local community wasn't too Aboriginal friendly to begin with. And in, in some ways, it's still not. Healing Music Project Coordinator, Brander McDonald. There's still sort of a sentiment or a residue within our society that says it's not that great to be a Native. And I happen to believe the opposite, that we have a lot as Native people from our worldview system, from our spiritual practices, from our ceremonies, all these kinds of things that can affect people in a positive way, that can encourage people, that can make our society better. According to trc.ca, the Prime Minister, on behalf of the Government of Canada, delivered a formal apology in 2008 at the House of Commons to former students, their families and communities for Canada's role in the operation of the residential schools. With the support of the Assembly of First Nations and Inuit organizations, formal residential school students took the federal government and churches to court. Their cases led to the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, the largest class action settlement in Canadian history. The agreement sought to begin repairing the harm caused by residential schools, aside from providing compensation to former students. The agreement called for the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada with a budget of $60 million over five years. The goal of the schools was to remove and isolate children from the influence of their homes, families, traditions and cultures and to assimilate them into the dominant culture, to kill the Indian in the child. These objectives were based on the assumption that Aboriginal cultures and spiritual beliefs were inferior and incapable of adapting to the rapid development of Canadian society. Uh, what is the native philosophy, native beliefs, native value system, native morals? Uh, what does our world, our universe look like? And then imagine what it's like to have uh, colonial power, i.e. residential schools, come in and kind of take over. And now you can't do your language, your regalia, your ceremonies, or anything because it's, it's considered, you know, abhorrent. And, and it doesn't match the uh, populace that's moving in, the colonial power. And so it, it brings a context. And I think it's great if we have education. It has to start at a, a very young age. It can't be just a mention in a book in school, uh, which it is now, thank goodness. Uh, it, has, it can't be just when you go to university and decide you want to take a class, First Nation Studies. I think it has to be integral to, to the fabric of the... Uh, of our history, and so that has to be taught in every school at every level. Speaking our own language would hold us back, and this was a time when our hunting was harshly regulated, our fishing was harshly regulated. There was an unofficial no-hire policy here in the valley, and of course residential schools weren't educating our children, so there were really tough times, hard times, and there was the belief that if we spoke Halkamalem, it would hold us back even further. My great-grandparents it wasn't a priority for their children to speak Halkamalam. Okay, so if you take away the, the language, the connection to the land, and the collection to your home area, and that's like your point of reference as a human or as an individual, basically as a human being, 
and then you take away the culture, which uh, or the um, the ceremony, which is you know all those connections to each other, and then and then you're not allowed to do any of those things. You're just like completely f free floating as a person uh, emotionally. You're you're not, you're not really connected to anything, and then you're forced into connecting with something else that's completely foreign. You have no frame of reference, and and you wonder why we're supposed to get over it. UFE faculty, Gwen Point. Built in our language is our worldview. There's a different levels of language. They, they say it's a high language for ceremonies. That's the only language you use when you're in a ceremony. So in our language, there are notions. We say latzamat, latzatala, one mind, one heart. Etamat, etathala, good mind, good heart. Just that notion alone tells you how we're supposed to conduct ourselves, how we do business. You can't move forward without a good mind and a good heart. One mind, one heart, bringing people together to work together. The punishment or abuse received at residential school left many of the children ashamed or afraid of their own culture and heritage. When students returned to their home community, they often found that they didn't belong. They had lost or were never taught traditional skills and cultural knowledge. I experienced culture shock when I went back to the mission. Author and residential school survivor, Bev Sellers. When I was in my home community, it was a very good place to be. I was free. I didn't have to worry about always getting into trouble. I was free to talk to whomever I wanted to and uh, associate with all my family members. Um, it was culture shock when I went back to the residential school because, uh, you know, all of a sudden I couldn't talk to my brothers and I had an older sister in the senior girls' dorm, but we didn't talk, you know, unless we happened to be in the playroom at the same time. We were all separated. So it was more of a culture shock to go back to the residential school, and it was always such a joy for me to go home. I think it's caused a loss of voice and a lack of or a breakdown of communication in families. I think that there's a lot of grief and loss that are those still trying to be worked on. UFE student Tashina Boulier. Most families have become very dysfunctional because of the residential school right to this day. Now we're now we're seeing that um, in order to survive, our language is crucial. UFE Halkamalem language instructor, Laura Wielik. Language and culture are inseparable. There is no difference between language and culture. We want to separate them because, I don't know, maybe it's easier to understand them, but uh, let's just say I was uh, Russian and I only spoke Russian. Uh, everything in my language, uh, language is, uh, you know, a way to communicate my thoughts and my feelings, my innermost thoughts and my innermost feelings to someone, and it's a way to express the world with win with, uh, within which I reside. And so culture is your actions. It's what you do. Uh, and so they're inseparable. If one is to learn their culture, but more importantly, not learn it, but live with it and do things with it. Traditional Aboriginal culture has a language, history, spirituality, and education system that is uniquely their own. To ensure the security and survival of their people, this knowledge was passed down from generation to generation. Each fragment contained the values and worldview that governed Aboriginal society. 
While attending residential school, students were not allowed to acknowledge or practice their culture. Breaking the rules meant punishment. But our growth of every kind was stunted because of the way we were treated at the schools. You know, we weren't allowed to be children, and that created a lot of problems for us. And I know when I was in my, um, uh, when I'd left the school, I had all kinds of social problems. I was painfully, painfully shy, um, and that had come from all the ridicule at schools. And I was um, scared of... I never slept, you know, without a light on. I was, I had nightmares. I was borderline anorexic and had all kinds of social problems. And at the time, I didn't um, connect it to the residential school. And it's only since I've managed to look back and and fix the things that, um, you know, and understand in my mind how those things uh, at the school affected me in later life that, um, you know, and as I've healed, those phobias have disappeared as well. So um, my fear of heights, my fear of being in an elevator, my fear of being alone in the dark, all of those fears have disappeared.
The education received at residential schools was often substandard and didn't help the students function in an urban setting. Nationally, residential schools failed on many fronts, not just in education. The food quality at residential schools at large was poor quality and unfit to meet the basic nutritional needs of the students. Learned how to steal in that school, but then they didn't call us stealing by us. We were called uh, savages. We told the police that we savages don't believe in stealing, we believe in sharing. That's all we know. So we never got the strap for that. Because I picked the lock, I stole a sack of potatoes, and took it down the furnace room. Used to cook it in the back of the stove. Stick about 12 squads in there and ate them when they were cooked. I guess the cooks threw me in and I got caught. There was only a quarter of sack of squads left. We were always hungry. Yeah, we used to rob the kitchen. I used to send JP in there to go see what's new in the kitchen. And he'd come and tell me, and I'd tell him, well, pass it around to the table. They better eat good right from now on. So we robbed the kitchen. The brother didn't know we were stealing meat from the kitchen. We robbed part of it. Everybody likes the meat. What the hell they were going to save it for, I don't know. We made sure they didn't save it. We used to rob the bakery truck, rob the kitchen, of oranges and apples. I was 14, I think. We used to go up the orchard and rob the orchard all the time, too. I always get caught. We just throw our hands up in the air when I put, rather put on his flashlight, tell him not to shoot. <laughs> He'd get mad for us saying that too. He was a pretty good guy. I seen a kid die over there too. That building was so so cold in the winter. The wind blew right through the windows. You could feel it when you're standing there and cold. I know I was always cold up there. My brother and my cousin used to come and get in bed with me because I used to take the springs out of the bed and a sag in the middle and then you keep warm. So we all slept in that. The last Indian residential school closed in 1996, but the legacy continues on today, with long-term emotional, spiritual, and cultural damage felt by many survivors. There is a different story for every Aboriginal child who attended residential school, and each one tells a truth. I think we're just starting this whole process, because I know when going to the um, TRC, there was a lot of talk about uh, survivors saying that we are telling our stories and we're truth-telling but we're not moving towards the area of reconciliation and for them that meant education and awareness and they just kept saying that over and over and over again so I think uh, I don't think government has really done their part I think there has to be follow-up I think the Commission after the after 2014 has to keep going I think uh, we need something like a, a member in Parliament whose only position is about the TRC. He's that's all he does. You know, a portfolio in government would be good because this is going to be with us for a long time. And it took us, you know, a hundred years or more to get th this situation. We have a long history of colonialism, whether or not the Prime Minister would agree. And so it's going to take us a long time to to get back to square one as a people, as an as a nation, as First Nations people, to heal. So I think we've got our work cut out for us. It's going to take a while. People are so quick to condemn Aboriginal people for all the social problems we have, but I think they need to understand that you take any group of uh, race, I don't care if it's the Chinese or the Irish or the British or, you know, any other group, and you put them through the same thing that Aboriginal people have been put through, and they will come out with exactly the same problems, the same 
social problems. So this this is a human problem. It's not a problem because, you know, Aboriginal people, this is the way they are. That is not it, and I think people need to understand that, that this is a human problem, not an Aboriginal problem. I mean, there's a... People, you know, and I've said this in my book, that people have told me that I need to to forgive. And I say, uh, bull to that. It's not up to me to forgive. You know, I've come to terms with my history. It's time that other people come to terms with the history as well. And to me, what I, real reconciliation will be when Canadian government and Canadian society accept that this is a part of our history, our collective history, and that something needs to be done about it. There's been a grave injustice to First Nations here, and that has to be made right. And until that happens, I don't think there can be any reconciliation. I think the, the, um, all the MPs and all the MLAs need to understand exactly what the residential schools did to First Nations people. I also think that they need to understand the tremendous contributions that Aboriginal people have made to the world and to Canada and to consider the injustice that has been done to the Aboriginal people and make that right. You can't fix a problem by throwing money at, at the problem, and uh, there needs to be a real uh, reconciliation with Aboriginal people being put back in control of their own lives. Always it's people imposing, you know, solutions onto Aboriginal people. The Aboriginal people have to be involved in, in how this is um, fixed. I don't mean to underscore or minimize the impact of residential school and all the work that needs to be done in order to rectify that history, to start healing from that history, and most especially to have uh, the government take responsibility for what they did, which they haven't yet. The apology it by far has done absolutely nothing to rectify that history. When I look around at all all the uh, Stalo people, all the Indigenous peoples, I'm just completely amazed by how strong and resilient we are, that we've gone through this horrific history and we've survived and we're thriving and we're continuing. You know, we've always been such adaptable people, one of our greatest strengths, I think, why we survived here for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years is because of our ability to adapt quickly. It was nice of Stephen Harper to apologize for the apologies, not enough. To make up for what the Indians went through. I'm not sure I'm buying it, but but I'm participating in it because, uh, well, quite frankly, it's the only course of action that we have available to us right now. I think that it's important, but I think that it's a minute starting point, and that absolutely truth is one thing, and thait we say in our language thait is the truth. Uh, and reconciliation, those two words really need to be looked at carefully and from whose perspective and whose truth are we talking about and what is the motivation behind reconciliation. Because I'm not here to ease the conscience of a government who's done something wrong. That's not why I'm participating in this. And I'm not here to accept chump change from a government who wants to ease its conscience. Just because the, uh, the, the commission is coming to an end, of their mandate it does not mean that, oh, we're all done, everybody's healed, reconciliation has taken place, uh, now we can live happily ever after. That's not the way it's going to work. I think that for First Nations people, as, uh, as Wilmoch, 
it really, really is important for us to look to our own culture and our own spirituality, you know, to, to, to keep us strong and to continue the legacy of resiliency. Because there, although there is a, a legacy of uh, an attempt to kill the Indian in the Indian child, so to speak, there are, there, there are some good things that are going on through the initiative of uh, First Nations people and, and, and with some collaboration with others. Truth, reconciliation, um, trying your best, putting your best foot forward, all good intentions, but unless you actually do something and you continue to do it every day, there will be no change. Until Canada actually uh, respects its first people, it has no backbone. They're walking on the backs of First Nations peoples, and I it, and they're not doing it in a respectable way. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the NCRA in partnership with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and Northern Development Canada, and was made possible with the help of the Red Jam Slam Society. The recording and research was commissioned by CIVL Radio and conducted by Alicia Williams, Ashley Camille, and Adam Roper. For more information on this and other resonating reconciliation presentations, visit previous.ncra.ca slash exchange. A crisis line is available to provide immediate emotional assistance and can be reached 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 1-866-925-4419. Thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Coastal Voices. Once again, that was Alicia Williams from CIVL-FM in Abbotsford. And you can access the interview on SoundCloud, um, soundcloud.com forward slash CFUV under the Coastal Voices playlist. That'll be up later this week or on the NCRA website under Resonating Reconciliation Exchange. I'm going to get into some music from ATRC, and then we're going to get into some news. So thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. I am Sasha. You're listening to Coastal Voices. And again, check us out on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com forward slash CFUV. What you heard before then was ATRC, a tribe called Red. If you're not familiar, where are you? You must be living under a rock. They're all over the place right now, winning awards and being nominated for awards and playing festivals all over Canada. And they're wonderful. They just put on a new album, Nation to Nation. And they're, I believe they're uh, touring with Tanya Tagakrik now. I know they're doing um, a festival very, very soon. Uh, I think on the island uh, with Tanya Tagak. Anyways. That's exciting. Um, next, we're going to get into some music from Shad K. And Shad just played at the Phillips Backyard Weekender this weekend. And if you were there, you'll know it was so amazing, such a good show. And um, this song is from Flying Colors. This one is called Fam Jam. And uh, thank you for tuning in to CFUV. After this, we're going to get into some news, maybe. So thank you for tuning in to Coastal Voices. Once again, this is Shag K, and this is Fam Jam from Flying Colors.
All right, let's get into some news. Uh, in February of last year, Hereditary Chief Bo Dick and his two daughters, Linnea and Geraldine Dick, and many supporters and allies started the journey from Port Hardy to Victoria in support of the Idle No More movement. Much support. Uh, they arrived with much support. Uh, at the BC Legislature on Sunday, February 10th of 2013, and a copper-cutting ceremony was performed on the steps of the Legislature, meant to bring attention to Prime Minister Stephen Harper uh, on the impact of the farm fishing pipelines and fracking in British Columbia and all across Turtle Island. The copper-cutting the copper cutting part of me is meant to draw attention to the issues of environment and Indigenous rights. And over the past year, there has not even been a whisper of response from Stephen Harper or the Harper government in regards to the copper cutting ceremony. And as concerns grew for our government and the oil company, companies such as LNG edging closer on indigenous territories, nothing was mentioned. Chief Bo Dick and chiefs from the surrounding nations began their journey to Port Hardy. Uh, from Port Hardy to Ottawa in late June, and on June 20, July 27th, they arrived in Ottawa and began the copper-cutting ceremony on traditional unceded Algonquin territory on the steps of Parliament in Ottawa. Chief Gujao can be, sa- can be sa- seen in videos uploaded telling the story of To, uh, the ulukan that provides the oil and that brings life. Ulukan Greece is incredibly sacred to coastal First Nations. In this heartfelt ceremony, you will hear the cries of people, of the people cutting copper and indigenous people surrounding them, shaking rattles and playing horns and drums and shouting with them as the copper uh, is cut. And uh, shouts will come for the crowds and Jugao holds the copper shield in the air when it is finally um, cut. The ceremony is meant to shame the government for not paying attention to the concerns of the indigenous people whose lands they live upon. And uh, it's not really surprising there's been no response from Stephen Harper. This occurred on July 27th and it's the 30th and, and nothing coming out of there, which is not surprising, albeit disappointing. The ceremony still shows that Indigenous folks from coast to coast are working hard to protect their territory and they take it very seriously, both uh, economically and spiritually. In other news, Bass Coast is an electronic music festival that takes place in Mare, BC, and recently a promoter from Bass Coast has come forward and released the following statement. Bass Coast Festival takes takes place on Indigenous land and we respect the dignity of Aboriginal people. We have consulted with Aboriginal people in British Columbia on this issue and we feel our policy aligns with their views and uh, wishes regarding the subject. Their opinion is what matters to us. Uh, Headdresses, war bonnets and moccasins have always been an important part of our Indigenous cultures and seeing this festival take a stand uh, against appropriation is definitely a step in the right direction. However, it is only one step in many. Uh, in honoring Indigenous territories, and in the future I hope to see Indigenous communities asked about their cultural protocols and uh, to be invited um, to participate in in these festivals as musicians and vendors. At Pemberton Festival this year, there was an opening ceremony dance with participants from the Lilwat Nation in ceremonial um, regalia. 
and there was certainly an indigenous vendors at, at, at that festival and there was a presence but not really much else was acknowledged. I would love to see Indigenous people being included as musicians, contributors, and being consulted with more thoroughly before these festivals take place on their territories. And once again, banning headdresses is a really good move for British Coast, like totally an amazing step in the right direction, but, but, but it uh, isn't the only move that needs to be made. And I think there should be some dialogue surrounding the history of the nation and territory and uh, that it would be beneficial to both nations and the festival goers. Base Coast takes place from August 1st to 4th. And for more on this, you can check out their website, basecoast.ca, to see what they have to say about the headdress situation. In other news, the Guasala Nakwara Nations have expressed surprise uh, when the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada decided to open Area 10 of Smith Inlet to commercial sockeye fisheries this week. The DFO is going against its own restrictions and are proceeding with this regardless of the steps made to conserve fish in this territory and area. According to Chief Paddy Welkus, there has been zero consultation with the Guaxala Nakwara Nations regarding this decision, and the Guaxala Nakwara Nations have been concerned about the protection of uh, sockeye stocks for some time and have been taking their own steps and, and not fishing for commercial or personal purposes uh, for quite some time uh, and to ho- in hopes of conserving the sa- salmon population. Chief Walka said that the nation intends to protect their interests and to ensure the future of the salmon that depend on this nation for survival. He closes in stating that the behaviors of the DFL is completely inappropriate, having only given them two days of notice before opening this uh, salmon fishery. So that is unfortunate news coming uh, from the DFL and coming out of the Guaxala Nakwara Nation, but once again, not surprising. That is something really common for the DFO to do from what I've seen. And um, most coastal British Columbia nations have and are still engaging in, in uh, court battles with the DFO regarding salmon stocks and different uh, different stocks. And I know that the Haida people are still uh, going through issues with them. So that's unfortunate. But uh, that is it for news, and we're almost out of here, so I'm going to get into some music. And next up, we have um, Street No Chaser, and for the music, we're going to get into, I think, Rise Ash and Beats Beats for Classic is, is appropriate. That should be good. Once again, thanks for joining me on uh, Coastal Voices, and I uh, hope you all tune in next week and check out what's what's uh, what's happening in the community. Once again, follow us on Twitter at CFUV, or you can follow me on Twitter at Sasha Boulette. Also, I have a little petition to sign on the Coastal Voices webpage. I've noticed some people have been joining and checking out the group. That's awesome. So good to hear that everybody's listening up and checking it out. Anyways, follow me on Coastal Voices on Facebook uh, and ask to join the group and and you shall receive. And uh, yeah, right now there is a, is a sign a petition thing. Sorry, I lost the word. Uh, yeah, sign a petition for Saving Grace Islet. You know, you may know we've been talking about it 
pretty recently and Grace Island is sacred territory that someone's trying to build on. So right now they have a petition going up. I just put it on the page and you can check it out and sign in and uh, support Grace Island. Thank you again for joining us on Coastal Voices and uh, have a great day.